0: Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Dark Rhino Security, Security Confidential. I'm your host today, Rory Michael, and today's guest is Mike Rice. Mike is a retired Navy SEAL officer who started out his military career as an enlisted Marine Corps Infantryman. Mike, thanks for uh, joining us. Hey, Rory. Thanks for having me, man. Absolutely. So your, your background in the military, your time in is definitely unique and interesting. Can you kind of shed some light on that for us? Yeah, thanks. I definitely had, I think, a slightly different career path than, than most.
1: Um, I did start, as you mentioned, I started off in the Marine Corps. I enlisted uh, like back in 1991 right after I graduated from high school and uh, went to the Marine Corps Infantry, was there for about four years. And then I took a, a selection course passed a selection course uh, and uh, went over to First Force Recon Company. So, first force recon back in the mid nineties was the Marine Corps special operations unit. And I was with them, uh, for about another four years. And then the Marine Corps decided to send me to, uh, to college to become an officer. And I went to college, uh, was in, in Washington DC on nine 11 and was there. I went to George Washington university in DC. So again, I was in in DC on nine 11 and for a variety of reasons, um, I applied for and was accepted into the into the SEAL program as a commissioned officer. So I went from being a staff sergeant in the Marine Corps to an ensign in the Navy. Felt like a demotion. I uh, became an ensign in the Navy and I went to Buds. Went to Buds as an officer and uh, graduated from class two four three, and uh, went to SEAL Team One. So that was my first SEAL team, and I spent uh, all of my career on the, on the West Coast. So SEAL Team 1 for multiple deployments and then SEAL Team 3. And then I my last duty station, I got shifted out to Bahrain, and I was working at 5th Fleet as an advisor to the command there, the 5th Fleet Command in Bahrain. And I finished out my time in the military there. I retired. Uh, from active duty in 2015, and then I did. I took a job down in Abu Dhabi and worked for UAE Special Operations, and we'll talk about them for some times here in this talk today. Um, interesting group there; they're trying to build up uh, a, a, really a nascent special operations capability. And uh, so I was worked for them for about three years um, and advised and assisted some of their military military operations in the MENA region, the Middle East, North Africa region and uh, mentored some of their, like, O5 and below officers on uh, special operations officer kind of stuff. And then I left there in 2018 and came back to the States and have been in the private sector uh, ever since, so.
0: Wow, yeah, that's, that's an awesome story. I mean, for any, any person in the military, let alone special forces, not to be in just one, but two highly selective, highly competitive, Branches. Yeah, I guess I was too dumb to quit. So, <laughs> and you know, you know what it really did, Rory. Is it, it?
1: And I always say this because it's for me, it's really true. I, I, I was always surrounded by guys who were better than me, and it, it made me, made me a, like the best version of, of of me that I could be. And uh, it was very humbling. And I was um, definitely surrounded by. Some very heroic and, and, and incredible guys and uh, very, very blessed in my career.
0: Right. So what motivated you or made you want to change from being in the Marine, the recon community, then going and shifting to the SEAL teams? Right. So it, it basically came down
1: to, to this. When I made the decision, this was, like I said, right after 9-11, um, MARSOC, had not been stood up at the time. So my experience at First Force Recon, while I was working with fantastic guys, some of my best friends, you know, in my life are still from that that period of time that I was at First Force Recon Company. Love those guys. Tons of respect for Marines, the Marine Corps, and the Marine Recon community. Definitely had a huge impact on my life. But at the time, they were not part of SOCOM. And so I looked at my career path um as as having to go through the Marine Corps officer commissioning process, um, and I went through Marine Corps OCS, Officer Candidate School, and then I came back and and I realized the rest of it like going to the Marine Corps officer they call it the basic school, and it's 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 like the initial pipeline for all officers, and you go through this process where there's a it's not certain what your MOS will be, outside of a couple of of, of unique differences like pilots and, and, and lawyers and things like that, Jacks. But everybody else goes in this kind of general pool, and you kind of kind of fight your way to get the MOS you it. Now, I, I probably had a pretty good chance of getting and, and becoming a, a Marine Infantry officer, which is the only thing I wanted to be. Um, but mm-hmm. but there was a bit of a it was a bit of a crapshoot, and if I had a couple of bad events or I made a mistake or something like that, then I I could have dropped down and and, and not gotten what I wanted. And then I ended up being something in the Marine Corps that I really just didn't personally want to do. And there's great, great people that do all kinds of different jobs in the Marine Corps, but I had a very specific um, want that I you know asked that I wanted. And so I looked at that versus if I went to Bud's, it was all in me and whether or not I could pass that and i was i was confident that i could pass um so that between the two of those I, I felt like i had more control plus i was going to go into a unit that was a part of again SOCOM, so they're they're a little bit higher up on the food chain when it came to things that um that matter to me so that that that's really why again no no disrespect to the marine corps at all it was a very selfish decision
0: it's, it's what i wanted for me in my career i got you. that makes sense so with switching And going the seal team route you were as guaranteed as your will was strong to yeah you being the special forces be in that arena yeah so it was was up to me and whether or not i could i could make it through and again i i I felt confident
1: you know i I knew it was going to be a challenge and it absolutely was it met all of those expectations it was a very very long nine month long roughly process um but it was something that i had more control over i felt and so I went to buds and I and I was respectful. I played I played the game, so to speak. Um, and it was interesting because I, when I went to buds, every phase of buds um, had a had a, a seal that I'd worked with before when I was at force recon. Um, mm-hmm. But even even that, I, I never I never tried to use that to my advantage. I never took it. I, I, I definitely just I was a, as good a bud student as I could be. And uh, you know, I, I didn't set any land speed records or so old course records or anything, but. I was definitely, you know, putting out, and I've tried to, to, do, to do my best throughout the whole process, and respected the process, and and uh, I, I think the instructors that I that I worked with, I think they respected that. So I, I think that's a, that's important. If you're, you know, if you're going to go into something like that, you can't go in there thinking you're going to game it because because you know somebody or, um, you know, because you're because you've been around for a little bit. I've been in the military for 12 years when I went to BUDS, which
0: is a little bit unusual. Yeah. So yeah. No, that makes, that makes total sense. How, I mean, what was the atmosphere kind of like in Bud's? Cause I'm imagining that was right after nine 11, like you said. Mm-hmm. So I'm, i would be curious to know kind of the, the mindset and the attitude of the instructors who were there.
1: Yeah. So I, I would say in general, um, even when I was in, in school and I was talking to my buddies that were at first force recon and um, then, then going to Bud's like the, the, everyone's attitude changed. And, all the BS kind of dropped away. There was less emphasis on things that didn't matter. And it was really front side focus on what do we need to do to get ready to go to war? And we all knew we were going to war and our instructor cadre, um, I think rightly so, looked at it um, even, not that there was any slack before, but whatever slack there was, was gone. Cause it was like, okay, I might be in a platoon with this guy in a year from now. And that's how they looked at us. Rightly so. Again, so it really right. stripped away, you know, any other sort of fluff. And it doesn't matter if the guy's going to, you know, be the triathlon god of the SEAL team. Is he? A, does he have the character traits that we're looking for? The, the all the things that the intangibles. Uh, is he strong? Is he? Is he? Does he? You know, does he have integrity? Does he have the things that make him a good teammate? Those those kinds of criteria, I think, really were sharpened because we're looking at. I'm, I might be in a platoon in Iraq with this guy in a short period of time, and, and do I want him next to me? That, those are the kind of, I think, that the attitude that shifted. is There wasn't any doubt
0: if we were going to go to war or not. We all knew we were. It's just who was going to make it. So, Right. No, that makes total sense. It definitely became more of a, you know, a real conversation with the people who were there that you were going to be in combat, you were going to be yeah. – doing all the things that, you know, some of the guys probably signed up to do, yeah. but at that time wasn't really going on. And, and now you were facing that reality head on. Yeah. So, I mean, the, the 90s when I was in the Marine Corps, look, we, we just beat the crap out of each other in training. I
1: mean, we, we trained really, really, really hard. Um, mm-hmm. But there was also a lot of stuff that just kind of, it, it would just didn't seem that important to me. But when you're not not at war, there's a garrison kind of attitude that kind of creeps in and, you know, haircuts and uniforms and some of the uh, kind of the, the, the parts of the Marine Corps that used to kind of chafe me a little bit were, were a big part of life in the 90s. Um, again, we trained very, very hard, um, but uh, I, I know that stuff kind of kind of dropped off uh, after 9-11. So it was uh, definitely an attitude that, that sharpened, everyone's attitude got a little sharper,
0: so. Yeah, certain, certain things started to become more important than others. Correct. Mm-hmm. Now that makes total sense. After 9-11, when Afghanistan first kicked off, where was kind of the technology as far as Special Forces and the SEAL team was concerned? Where, where was your level of technology at?
1: Right. So I would say it, it, was, it, was, it was pretty rudimentary overall. Like there were, there were operation centers, uh, UAVs were starting to be integrated. There were, you know, satellite communications, um, but like night vision was still um, still being worked on. It was it was it was okay, but it wasn't uh, like when I was at Force Recon. I don't think we we didn't we didn't wear night vision very much. It was back in the mid '90s, and mm-hmm. because it just wasn't that good. And you actually had better situational awareness if you just let your eyes adjust. And it was. Um, it was definitely one of those another one of those things that sharpened everyone's attitudes and technology was was looked at as, as a way we could we could leverage an advantage over the enemy because they were not very technologically sophisticated so those things very very quickly i think took off and like the seven bravo night vision when they came out they they were an, a, a big increase in the in the capability versus the previous iterations um, that, that I, I remember, I used to see even back in the early '90s, and and they were they were pretty they were pretty much garbage back then. NVGs were the night this goggles. So, and then communications, satcom communication, um, it it got a little bit better, I would say, but there there wasn't there wasn't a whole like I would say compared to what I saw towards the end of the war, it, it was a it was a really pretty dramatic improvement in our ability to incorporate effective technology that enhanced our, our war fighting capability. So, um, I, I think that was one thing that, that, you know, that, that got much, much better over the 20 odd years of the, uh, of the, of the wars over there. So,
0: yeah, that makes sense. Do you feel like when we first got involved, you guys were kind of on par with the enemy or maybe slightly above. And then towards the end, you had a dramatic, um, uh, increase over the enemy's capability from a technology standpoint versus your own? Yeah, I, I think that's probably fair to say. Um, I, I would say
1: my, our, our ability to leverage technology in surveillance, in, in targeting, um, it got much, much more sophisticated over time. And it, it became really a... a, 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 a a dramatic increase in our capability and it also allowed us to lower risk profiles as well so we, we also adjusted tactics so you know over the beginning of the, the first few years of the war we were um, taking more casualties for sure than we did at the end uh, for sure and some of that was directly related to our ability to leverage effective battlefield technology and i'll give you and a, a, so yeah, so I, I'll talk about something here. This is regarding my, my UAE SOC buddies. Um, so UAE Special Operations Command guys, they're they're trying to build up their technological capability, and they're they're working on their targeting, trying to t- trying to b- basically mirror our F three EA cycle, our find, fix, finish, exploit, and analyze. So the F three EA cycle was was how we ran our operations. That was kind of the construct that everything fell underneath, and. <clears throat> There's, but there, let me. I want to talk about something where the enemy was also able able to leverage some, some of this capability against us. So when I first w- went to work for the sock guys in uh, in mid mid 2015, um, shortly after that, a few months after that, they they suffered. Uh, it was the largest single loss of life in their history as a nation, their military um, that, that their military suffered, and about. I think it was a little over fifty. they, they stopped publishing numbers when they hit fifty. Uh, fifty men were killed. This is September of fifteen. were killed in a rocket attack on a, on a munitions depot. Now the the ammunition was in an air conditioned bunker, there's some lack procedures there, lax procedures, there's a big group of UAE, Bahraini, and Yemeni troops were inside this kind of air conditioned bunker. Okay. And they were hit, the, the bunker was hit by some rockets It detonated the munitions and killed a lot of guys, injured dozens more. It was a big tragedy. But we ended up finding out the way that the Iranian-backed Yemeni militia were able to target them was through social media posts. And the soldiers there, the, both the Bahrainis, the Emiratis, were sending pictures back home and had locational metadata embedded in the pictures. And that's how they're able to figure out exactly where they were and they targeted them. So the Emiratis got a lot more serious about device security after this happened. Um, But you can imagine, you know, that this is an example, I should say, it's an example of there are some players out there that got very sophisticated as well. And using locational data, they're also able to during the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, um, we were also able to figure out they were mapping some of our, our bases using fitness applications and wearable devices that some troops were using that locational data that they were broadcasting unwittingly. And there were some Iranians that were able to, Iranian units are able to track that and start to map out where our bases were. So the Strava app and Fitbit, those kind of wearable devices. And so that became um, illegal to use over there um, as a result of that. So it goes, it goes both ways. You know, the, the enemy also has a, has a, you know, they have a, a vested interest in, in in evolving themselves, and it's not just us that have got better, they also got a little bit better as well.
0: Yeah, and I, I'd argue definitely a little bit more creative there, maybe thinking outside the box more so than we were as far as the repercussions of these technologies. So I, here's another question for you then. Where, like, where did you see technology affect the teams the most? Was it more so the information technology, what you guys were receiving on the screens, or was it more so like improvements to your weapons, to assets that you had at your disposal? May that be uh, airstrikes or that sort of thing? Yeah, so I I think our, our weapons... Um,
1: at least for the ground troops like myself, there there wasn't a, it, like any massive improvements there. They they got a little bit better for sure, but not not an exponential improvement. Um, I would say the exponential improvements came in like command and control systems, our ability to communicate cross functionally, ability to communicate between different branches of the service, because um, there were some siloed kind of communication, um, uh, avenues before where we broke a lot of those down. Um, our, our operation centers became much more joint. Um, and the use of UAVs in particular was a, was a really a game changer because we could fly predators overhead for, you know, 12 plus hours at a time, depending on weather. And we could run multiple lines of, of, ISR, so we could run basically twenty four seven surveillance on targets, and we were able to also start to leverage different technology to gather information about the enemy um, in ways that we never could before. And so, our ability to become more accurate in our targeting, um, instead of having to go out there and just you know stomp around the woods or you know stomp around the, the dirt for days at a time we could in some instances know exactly what house inside of a village even sometimes the the side of the house so we could figure out the room that the person we were going after wherever this guy was was at so we became more accurate it it, interestingly enough i think that saved lives on both sides so we 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 were able to save a lot of american lives and coalition lives and we also were able to to save a lot of innocent people uh, from being hurt um, over there, by becoming more accurate in our targeting, and that was the UAV technology. I think was one of the biggest. We had, we also had the ability, uh, you know, capability to to um, to broadcast signals where where our our commanders back in the, the job the operation centers could see what was going on as well. So that sort of situational awareness um, and the good commanders that they were able to really leverage that to support troops on the ground and have a better understanding of what was going on it's not perfect though I will say <clears throat> I'll, I'll add this as well to the, the UAV the whole ISR because some of the some of the manned platforms as well experienced this because I, I actually flew in a couple of them just to see what it was like the, the manned platforms and they're, you're looking through it's not, not this bad but it's essentially like a soda straw or you know some okay. sort of tube you're looking down and you're looking at at things from from a different, like a straight down angle or from a side angle. And so it's not perfect. And and there's going to be much better technology in the future. You know, coming up, I'm sure there's stuff even in the pipeline right now. I came off off active duty in 2015. I left the Emirates in 2018. So uh, even since I've left, there's been, improvements in this technology when it comes to um visualizing things on the battlefield but so again the man platforms you're, you're up there you got some weather you're bouncing around you're looking through a soda straw at one part of a target it's sometimes you know usually that's at night most of the time pretty much all the time it's it's going to be in like that green black kind of uh kind of shading so things were not super clear and and there was definitely some mistakes made, and I'll give you an example of one that I personally witnessed that almost was a catastrophe, because you can't always, I mean despite our best efforts, you can't always tell exactly what's going on. So we were in an operations center in Afghanistan, and we were doing surveillance over a target area. And we started to notice a group of what appeared to be military-age males that were gathering in in a location outside of the village, just outside. And we watched them for several hours, and they appeared to be digging some sort of a of a trench or something next to the road. And this is a road that coalition forces would go up and down sometimes, and so we were we were concerned, and so we started really focusing in on them again. We watched them for hours, and we thought for sure that. The, this was a, probably a good a good strike and so there were preparations operations made you you're watching with a drone flying overhead yes we're watching with a drone so we're watching the target through the through the, the drone back in the operations center so it's bouncing off of the yeah. drone coming back to us and right. we watched for for you know a couple of hours i think total and again thought we had an idea of what was going on so we started to spin up an airstrike and mm-hmm. then at the at almost the last minute that the senior enlisted um the master chief there kind of he's like has hey, something about it just didn't sit right with him so we we took another look at it we're like all right you know what let's go in on the ground let's we're going to take a bit of a risk here so I'm risking us troops to do this and but we we decided that was that was the right call cuz it wasn't a slam dunk um there weren't a lot of indications of weapons and so we we went a little bit again a little bit more cautious on this one we mounted up Went out there, conducted a ground assault. Thank God we did, because it, it turned out to be just a bunch of young boys, kids essentially, out there playing soccer. And they were digging this goalpost to try to get their, their soccer goalpost installed so they could play soccer on, on this big field. <coughs> Again, th- that was not what we saw on the other end. And that that's mm-hmm. somewhat of an extreme example. You can usually have a pretty good idea of what's going on in the battlefield, you know, of what's going on on the other end. But, you know, there's been a lot of, if, if you look at the history of the last, you know, 15, 20 years that we've been using this drone technology and remote strikes and these, um, you know, these, this, this, kind of targeting system, it's not perfect. So, it's it's still got a long way to go i think and and i know there are companies and you know our defense industry is working very hard on this because at the end of the day it saves lives on our end and it also saves innocent lives which is interestingly you know despite all the criticism we, we we put a lot of effort into not hurting um good people over there and there's a lot of good folks over there that just you know that's where they live and We certainly didn't want to hurt them. We were trying to target the criminal groups, the terrorist organizations, the the, the ones that were actually um, also hurting those good people as well. So it's it's a win-win for everybody when we become more accurate and and more sophisticated in our targeting.
0: All right. Well, on that note, I think we'll uh, we'll call it a, a session, call it a wrap.